Hello everyone, I'm Angie. And I'm Paul. And you're listening to Jen Squeeze's Hard Truths. What's today's hard truth, Paul? You know, in our ideal future, Canada wouldn't need us because generational fairness would be baked into government decision making and it would be a concept that most people would know and support. And happily, this is increasingly happening in several other countries in various ways. And we know it can and should happen here at home as well. Mm-hmm. And for inspiration, we're going to Wales to learn from a leader in the international intergenerational fairness movement. Folks, our guest today, Derek Walker, became the second ever Future Generations Commissioner for Wales in March of this year. I'll pass the baton now to Megan and Paul to lead the interview and come back later to talk about the highlights. Hello, I'm Megan Wild, and I want to welcome Derek Walker, Wales Future Generations Commissioner. Thanks for joining us. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. So to start out, tell us a bit about the Wales Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and the creation of your role and how you fit within the Wales government ecosystem. So I'm Wales's second Future Generations Commissioner, so uh, only four months in post. And um, my job is independent of government whilst being appointed of Welsh government. And uh, the job is to look out for the interests of future generations. Um, What that means in practice is we have a law in Wales since 2015 called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And that law applies to public bodies, so local authorities, councils, health boards, um, devolved public institutions. And they're obliged to think about well-being and the long term in all that they do. And there are seven well-being goals, um, which are really interesting in themselves. And they put at the heart of government and how we do things in Wales, sustainable development and the sustainable development principle. And so um, they're obliged to follow this legislation, as I say, in all that they do. And my job is to assess and monitor their progress Um, to advise and support them to make progress uh, that we want to see and potentially to call things out where I'm not seeing the progress that I would like to see. Um, I can also undertake deep dives. So where we think there's a particular issue um, that needs looking into in more depth, perhaps where we're making not enough progress, I can ask for a Section 20 review and they're obliged, public bodies and others are obliged to take part in that and to respond to the recommendations I make. So there are significant powers attached to the role, but there are also a lot of soft powers attached to the role as well. So the ability to convene, the ability to put a spotlight onto particular issues is something that the role enjoys. And I've, I've been joking in my previous job in the, in the third sector, in the charity sector, if I'd written to the 22 local authorities that exist in Wales and asked to meet with the chief executive, Maybe three of them would have written back and one would have agreed to meet. But in this role, you know, they all write back and they all agree to meet, which is um, a fantastic opportunity to have conversations and to support and influence what they do. Yeah. Well, so what do you mean by long term and what do you mean by thinking of the interests of future generations? 
Yeah, well, I guess it depends, and that's not prescribed. I think in our office, we tend to think in terms of two or three generations, um, you know, 50, 75, 100 years. Um, but that's very difficult in practice for public bodies in Wales to do. And so we encourage them as far as possible to think as long term as they can. And, you know, for example, we have seen healthcare strategies now that go on for 10 years, which is an improvement on where they used to be. So not quite the long term aspiration yet, perhaps that we would like to see, but nonetheless, longer term than has previously been the case. And I guess that follows. That's what we mean, really, in terms of future generations. So we're not we're not talking about um, necessarily young people today. Obviously, they are um, our future. But we're thinking of those people not yet born and the generations to come. So um, it's about acting today uh, for resolving today's problems whilst also resolving tomorrow's problems as well. So not putting a sticking plaster on things, not creating problems that we're going to just have to sort out in years to come, but doing both at the same time, recognising that there are you know, very real issues for public bodies to face today, but they need to be thinking about doing that in, the, in a long-term way that doesn't store up problems for the future. And why do you think Wales was such fertile ground for the creation of this act and a position like yours? What what about Wales is unique that put it at the forefront of this kind of future generations movement? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, ever since we've had devolution in Wales, so that's since 1999, where Wales as part of the UK was given devolved powers over things like health and education, sustainability, sustainable development has been very much um, part of the thinking. And um, that was strengthened with the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. Um, and it's been led by politicians such as Jane Davidson, who pioneered the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, who were really committed to this and wanted to make it work. I think also there's a there's a good fit. So a lot of, you know, what Wales is about is about, you know, uh, um, beautiful, you know, countryside and mountains, um, very, you know, dependent on our natural resources, a country that has heavily relied on fossil fuels, coal um, industry, for example, for our prosperity, and a country that's needed to change and um, make, a, make a difference, couldn't continue in that way, and was looking to understand how it could be as a country, how we could be as a country in the future, and what that would, would look like. So I think it has also felt like something that has been a part of our narrative and the narrative that we wanted to create for ourselves as a country. Well, I would like to hear more about how the act was passed. Was was there an organization pushing for it? You mentioned Jane Davidson. Like, how did this happen? Um, well, it's you know there were lots of things that happened, and I wasn't directly involved at the time. I was I was involved in you know on the sidelines, I guess, um, in the third sector. Um, but um, Jane Davidson. Uh, was uh, a leading politician in the early years of the legislation, uh, proposing it and convincing other politicians in the country of the need for it. So she was inspirational in making it happen. But I think, frankly, it probably wouldn't have happened without a lot of support and commitment from the charity sector and the third sector, from those outside that um, campaigned for this. So 
WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, uh, has been key in making this happen, putting their own hand in their pocket to invest in, you know, research and so forth to understand it might happen and and to be influencing politicians uh, to make it happen. I think um, one of the things that I was more directly involved in but was not leading was a national conversation which we called the Wales We Want. So there was a big involvement and engagement exercise with the people of Wales to understand what we wanted as a country and where we wanted to go as a country. And so that was extremely influential, I think, in in helping us to get to where we wanted to go and putting in place the well-being goals, which set the direction uh, that we want as a country. So we talk in terms of 2050, and um, that conversation was extremely useful and underpins how we work today. So um, I didn't talk in depth about it, but the legislation requires public bodies to think about the five ways of working, which is how we um, incorporate the sustainable development principle into practical action. And one of those uh, ways of working is involvement. And we don't mean passive consultation. We mean real involvement with those people affected by the decisions, taking a role in influencing those decisions. So the Wales We Want was a very involving conversation. And when we see real um, action by public bodies, I often also see a great deal of proper, meaningful engagement and involvement of the people concerned, which brings about the kind of urgent and bold action that we want to see. Hmm. That's so interesting to me, because we often talk about how we would like to bring the love and caring that's between generations and families into the world of politics, because the world of politics does operate on shorter term time frames because of elections. And so that involvement process, do you think that was really key in, in making this happen? Because you were involving people who, who do have that more natural instinct to take care of each other and I think it was critical, yeah. Um, I think the involvement has been critical in creating an important number of people that were right behind this legislation and supporting and urging the politicians to bring it about. You know, there was an eye on it so that people wouldn't let it go. It wasn't something that could have been easily dropped because there wasn't enough parliamentary time or because they couldn't get it right. People really felt that they wanted this legislation. And what you see now is a country that's very proud of it. And many people very proud that a small country like Wales, only 3 million people, you know, dominated by a much bigger neighbour in a, you know, in a much bigger country. Um, we have a piece of legislation that people are interested, like yourselves in Canada, all around the world. And um, although we've got a long way to go with it, we're very proud that um, we're trying something world-leading and pioneering that um, can make a real difference. So I think it's key going forward. So my job is about making impact. You know, it's not, I'm not here just to, you know, keep the chair warm. I'm here to support public bodies to make an impact. And, you know, most of the public body leaders that I meet are really keen to do the same, but they're, they're in really challenging circumstances often. So it's about how you support them to do that. And I think involving people and the population in that process is going to be critical to making the change that we want to 
<laughs> Sorry, I have a, some cake delivered. <laughs> um, <laughs> One should always have cake delivered in the middle of podcasts. <laughs> this gives an impression that, you know, I just have cake and coffee delivered. My partner has just delivered some freshly made cake, which is very nice. Um, well done, partner. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's done a great job. Um, what was I saying? It feels to me in some ways like a, a people's act. It's, a, it's, it's law for the people. And although it applies to public bodies, um, we're probably really dependent, or we we are we are dependent on people um, urging and encouraging and calling out public bodies who are not, not acting on the legislation. I, I, you know, I'm just one person with a small team, um, but if we can enable and empower the people of Wales to 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 challenge decisions or to influence decisions where they feel that the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act should be applied or isn't being applied, then we're going to go much further and make more of, a, more of an impact. And we are starting to see that. We do see that, for example, in planning decisions, whereby you know people will call things out and say, well, actually, is this really in, in line with um, the Wellbeing of Future Generations? Is this about um, the long term? Are we considering our children and our children's children? and um, asking public bodies to justify their decisions on that basis. That's a good segue to another thing that we're interested in, because one of our goals is to have Canada create a Minister of Generational Fairness. So we'd really like to learn from what your position, where it succeeded and where you, uh, where you wish it was different. And, and so it sounds like you have some teeth as a watchdog of this act, but how does that work? Like, can you just stop something from happening? Um, and why do you think it was chosen to be a commissioner? What power does that give you? Yeah, there are pros and cons of the minister versus the commissioner role. Um, I think um, one of the advantages of being a commissioner is that you're independent and you're not re-elected, you're appointed. So I'm in post for seven years. So I'm not having uh, an eye on the future, an, an eye on getting... I, I do have an eye on the future. That's not what I mean. But, uh, <laughs> that's the whole point of the job. Yeah, I, I'm not having an eye on being re-elected because I can't be re-elected. It's, it's an appointed post and you can only do it for seven years. You, we got it. If you see what I mean. So yeah. very much with an eye on the future. But um, well, that means I can say things perhaps that politicians might find uncomfortable to say um, because... They might not want to be uh, unpopular and they don't want to do something that might damage their electoral success. Well, I don't need to worry about that. So I can create a space and speak truth to power, I think, on those real issues that uh, are really important for the long term. On the other hand, that means, you know, I'm not resourced like a minister. I can't stop things happening. I don't have huge budgets. I'm not responsible for the delivery of certain programs or services or or agendas. So whilst um, I can support government and public bodies to deliver on their agendas, I can advise, and we do, to help implement things to best effect and to make a real impact. You know, I don't have the resources of a minister and the powers of a minister. So, you know, it's about influencing and persuading and making the case and so forth. So it's a it's quite a different role. So there are real pros and cons. I, I'd be interested in how you get on with that because, you know, one of the things that I, I really think is important in this role is the independence of the role and the fact that, 
you know you can call things out um in a way that perhaps others couldn't if you could be an orthodontist and give yourself you know a, a change to the teeth that you have would you add anything would you change anything how would you adapt those teeth oh that's a good question i mean i mean only four months in the role so i'm cautious about asking for more powers um at this stage i certainly think you know we, we don't have a big budget for this role and there is a lot to do so the well-being goals are, cover all aspects of of what the public sector might do and what happens in wales more generally so there are so many things that i could be getting involved in and um, commenting on or supporting or, or advising on um, mm -hmm. that's just not possible and so i'm going through a really difficult time of trying to prioritize at the moment and understand where i can make the most impact which will mean some tough decisions about where i don't play a role because there's just too much to do i think the other area might be in terms of a casework function potentially although that could be huge. So get a lot of contact already to the office about supporting particular cases mm. and advising people on particular circumstances or particular issues that they're dealing with. Well, other commissioners, we have an older persons commissioner and a, a children's commissioner in Wales, and they have a casework function and they can provide direct and advice support to individuals or groups where I don't have that function. And I think that would be, that would be um, useful. You know, and there are other areas as well, you know, bigger picture issues in, in terms of, you know, perhaps um, really requiring public bodies to act on the recommendations that I make, you know, that would give me very real tooth. But I've got to be careful because I'm I'm not elected. And of course, the elected politicians have a democratic mandate and that's, mm -hmm. that's the right thing. So they're the ultimate decision makers. And, and they're the ones that have responsibility for allocating resources and taking those decisions. That's not my role. So it's a careful balance here, recognizing that they're ultimately responsible and they have the, they have the budgets to do that. And my, jo my job is to advise, assess, monitor and um, review where action isn't being taken properly. You know, you mentioned the word a, a balancing act <clears throat> and... And you mentioned that you're sort of early in the role. And I, I want to harken back to one of these things you said when you were taking on the new role. You asked the question, how do we get people to think about the future when they're worried about how they're going to pay this month's bills? And we firmly believe that getting to net zero, for instance, will help us with the cost of living crisis. And so I wonder, how do you answer your own question? It's, it's massively challenging to do that. And um, one of the ways in which that is done is the well-being of future generations acts allows public bodies to take this broader picture into account so in order to justify a decision they can look at the seven well-being goals and take account of environment social community as well as economy and other parts of the goals, the seven, when they're taking decisions. So that allows them to take a bigger picture. They, they shouldn't take account of just one, one area in which they work. So I think that's one of the ways it, in which it's important. I think um, what we try to do is provide information around future trends and so that we can inform public sector bodies in their decision making on the basis of data and information we have. So that can be very influential as well. I think also sometimes it's a matter of putting particular 
tools in place that enable this to happen. So I give one example of a hospital here in South Wales where they put in a solar farm to supply energy directly to the hospital. And when it opened, they got a lot of interest in this, a lot of positive interest. But the challenge was, why are you spending this money on a solar farm when we've got people waiting outside hospitals in ambulances to be seen by accident and emergency? And surely that's a bigger priority. And what had happened in that instance was they'd been given uh, dedicated funding for energy or environmental projects so it couldn't be used for the accident and emergency department so they were able to more easily defend their decision which could have been you know you can understand why it might be criticized by those people who are not receiving the healthcare service that they would want and actually that's been a great decision they they opened um this solar farm before the war in ukraine i believe and energy prices here have gone up by a huge amount and the savings to the hospital and the health board have been significant and have gone beyond what they first anticipated. Um, and, you know, those savings can now go back into the delivery of healthcare services for the people of that area. But it would have been really challenging for them to do that if they hadn't have had this allocated or separate budget provided to them by the Welsh Government. Uh, I think your example of the, you know, the... The, the demand, the aspiration, the need for medical care right now. Your population is aging, as our population is aging. That puts different pressures on public violence. I think it's a lovely segue for where I'd like to go next. In Canada, as we've been thinking about our strategy, so inspired by your role, what's happening in Wales, we've been thinking about, you know, do we want a commissioner or a minister for future generations, or do we want a, we want both a commissioner and a minister responsible for generational fairness? And we've opted for the latter because the latter invites us to have conversations not just about, as you talked about, you know, those who were unborn, but also those here today as well. And to talk about some of the tensions that are emerging among generations alive today. And so a lot of our work talks about, you know, consistent with your focus on, on net zero, like, oh, we've extracted so much of the atmosphere's scarce capacity absorb carbon. We're leaving little, um, little of that capacity left over and extreme weather is the legacy. But when we bring that intergenerational tension to other issues like housing, for instance, you know, so much wealth has been extracted from our housing system uh, for homeowners, especially those who got in some decades ago, we leave little affordability left over. Or in our country context, we have a lot of extraction of tax dollars from economic growth today to go to retirement income security and medical care for the aging family members in our lives who we love. But then we're leaving relatively less left over to invest in the child care or in some of the housing supports and education for our younger demographics. So our work is trying to draw attention to these power dynamics and risks between generations at this moment of you know, success, longevity that we've achieved, but also a demographic shift is that big baby boom has been moving through its life course and getting now to a later stage in lives, which can be more expensive as part of the human reality. And so I wonder what, how do you uh, experience that tension between, or that challenge of addressing tensions between generations today and maintaining your focus toward those who are unborn? unborn? That seems to be like an interesting balancing act in your 
your act that governs your work seems to incline you to be a little bit more future focused and maybe, you know, dancing around some of the tensions that exist here now? Well, we try to do both. Um, and there is a children's commissioner that particularly looks at the interests of um, the younger generation today. And we work very closely together. Um, but we try to do both. So I find um, that involving young people in particular in decision making and in talking to public sector leaders can be very influential uh, not just in representing their interests as younger people today but also in taking that longer term perspective because they're also likely to be the generation that's going to be here in 50 years in the same sort of time scale mm -hmm. that I've been talking about so uh, I, I think for me we we try to do the both at the same time I don't see any challenge in trying to do both of those things at the same time and um, one of the ways that we've done that is we have a Future Generations Leadership Academy of young people between 18 and 30, and they are supported to have a, a, a good education and understanding of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and how it's applied. But they're also involved in reverse mentoring our public sector leaders, so they're able to talk directly and influence public sector leaders in today's decision making and that seems to be very impactful so we do try to do both of those things uh, we talk more about future generations and long-term thinking than perhaps we do talk about intergenerational justice but i've only just recently put together a statement with the children's commissioner on this very issue actually with the old persons commissioner at the same time to highlight the need for the interests of all generations to be considered and thought about in decision making. Oh, that's really interesting. Let us make sure that we uh, stay apprised of that and, and watch you. I think it's interesting you, you referred to working with the Commissioner for Older Persons. Is that the precise name? I, I talk about seniors here, but I like that older persons is a nice phrase. And I, when I listen to you, I think I hear you say so much of your role as the commissioner, being able to say things that are potentially unpopular, a little more risky for a politician to say than for you. I think you're often in the business probably of creating political cover for our world of politics to respond bravely to some of the evidence about the intergenerational tensions that exist um, today and into the future. And so I wonder, as you're trying to create political cover for that kind of long-term thinking, what, what actions or strategies do you take to sort of collaborate with older persons and harness their power to provide some of that political cover to think long term? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, uh, perhaps we haven't done enough of that, actually, um, of working directly with an older demographic. But I think your point is right about, I wouldn't call it political cover, but creating a space for these bold decisions. So we're in a, an emergency, aren't we? We're in a cl climate and nature emergency. We need bold and radical action. And um, someone needs to be saying that. And we need um, government to potentially be taking really unpopular decisions. And I do see my role as um, providing 
um, some support for some of those decisions. So it's not my job to say whether the specifics of the decision are the right thing to do necessarily, but that the need for bold and urgent action is necessary in this space. So I'll give you an example. We, in our capital city, the city of Cardiff, um, the council is looking to put road user charging in place as a way of reducing the number of cars in the city, air quality, etc., raising money for public transport and all those sorts of things. You can imagine, you know, that is not going to be popular with everyone. And um, it's the first um, city in Wales to do so. Other parts of the UK, um, London has had something similar for a long time. And I do see it as my, you know, not for me to get involved in, you should be charging these vehicles and you should be charging that price. But to say this is the type of radical and bold action that is needed in this climate emergency. If we carry on just tweaking around the edges and not thinking about big changes, then we're not going to get the country ready for the future and not do justice to current or future generations. So the point you make about the role in creating a space for these bold and urgent decisions, I think is an important one for me. One example that I was particularly impressed with, your predecessor, it it looks like, was able to intervene in the planning for a, a major highway project. And I'm curious if you can tell us that story, how that happened. And um, and then I'm also just curious, was it unpopular? How did they overcome any resistance? Yeah, it, it was a big decision and probably the biggest change that we might point to uh, as a result of this law. And my predecessor, Sophie Howe, called out basically a decision that was being taken by the Welsh government to build a motorway relief road around the city of Newport, which would have cost billions, I think, and um, would have been a debt for future generations to come, but would have also damaged some, you know, nature sites and so forth and exacerbated the problem. You know, we know creating more road space encourages more cars, creates more congestion, pollution and so forth. And so she gave evidence and bravely said to the public and to um, the government that this could not be justified. And so that decision was changed and they didn't go ahead with that um, relief road. There was a couple of things I would say about that. You know, it was really important important. It wasn't popular. It was popular with some, but not with others. Um, happens to be in an area where I was brought up. And so, I, you know, I know people, I know my parents didn't think it was a great decision because they <laughs> felt that they were going to be stuck on the motorway in congestion for longer and it needed to be sorted. But many people supported it and it's been accepted. It's still politically a uh, sensitive subject. So political parties still debate the subject and bring it up on a regular basis. But what's happened now is we're seeing a real shift in transport policy. So we are now seeing roughly a third of our budget of for transport in Welsh Government spent on roads, whereas it used to be two thirds spent on roads. We've seen a significant increase in the budget spent on active travel, so cycling and walking. And we're going through that transition period whereby hopefully we're going to see improved public transport services 
and um, more people biking and cycling. It's very controversial. It's always in the news. And we're not there yet. I mean, this has to be about outcomes for people, doesn't it? So if people feel that, you know, this hasn't worked and we don't get to a place where congestion is resolved and people are able to use public transport as an alternative to driving in a practical way, then then we haven't got to the place we need to get to. And we're not there yet. We need to get to the outcomes and um, not just not just pack up, pat ourselves on the back for a brave decision, but follow that through into put in place the solutions that we need. So we're going through that process. I'm very positive about the journey that we are taking, but we need to you know continue with that so that we do resolve the issues which um, were the problem we were first trying to look at. So it's clear that that's a really interesting example of bringing your legislation and act to bear on a transportation project. So I think infrastructure uh, has been a theme in raising regularly. You know, I think back to the the solar farm adjacent to the um, to the hospital. Do you, does your office have the capacity to reflect on um, age or generational trends in sort of operational spending? You know, the relative balance in spending on medical care, say, relative to education or to social services, and how that plays out along age and generational lines. Do you have resources that you're able to bring to bear on that front? Um, we haven't done that in the four months that I've been in the role, and I'm not aware that we've done that in the last seven years. It's, it is something that we could do, um, nothing to stop us doing that, should we be able to find the resources to look at those sorts of things. But it is exactly the space in which we could be acting and you know, drawing attention to particular spending decisions or trends or impacts on certain groups over others and uh, how it might be detrimental. Yeah, not something that I'm aware that we've done specifically, but certainly something that's in the, you know, in, in the powers of the office to be able to do. One of our asks of our senior levels of government is to begin reporting their budget trends um, by age. In addition to, we have something called GBA+, gender-based analysis plus, so a lot of attention to income trends, gender trends, racialized trends, and so on. And we've advocated for governments to bring an age or generational lens. We're making some progress on that front. Does your government break down its budget analyses by age in a way that's you know transparent for you to comment on or for citizens more generally? I don't know that they do, but I was in a meeting with Welsh Government budget team yesterday and we were talking about gender budgeting and they do a, a fair amount to think about how budget decisions impact on gender. And I asked the question, you know, you're thinking about gender, but how do you think about age or race or, you know, other protected characteristics when you are thinking about budgets? And the answer to that question was, they weren't doing that directly, but actually as part of thinking about gender and thinking about uh, equity impact in, in funding decisions, it was, I think, raising their awareness and enabling them to have a, uh, a much more detailed understanding of the impact on, on lots of different groups. So I would think we're at a, a relatively early stage in some of that thinking, and I'd love to know more about what you're doing and to share that 
with colleagues here. Our civil servants are working as part of the Alliance of uh, Wellbeing Economy Governments. And I think they mentioned that they were particularly working with colleagues in Finland to understand how they consider this and how we might apply it. So, you know, we've done a fair amount of work. We've got a fair way to go in thinking about this. And I was also concerned to make sure that this wasn't just being done at the Welsh government level, so at the country level, but this was being done by other public bodies as well. And we were sharing the learning, you know, with local authorities and the health authorities as well. Hmm. Well, we're collaborating closely with our government here in British Columbia and making some really interesting headway. Oh, please do share that with us. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that will come, that should come to public light more in the early fall. So we'll, we'll send it your way as a, an example. My last question, because I'm conscious of the time, and then maybe I'll hand it, hand it over to Megan to wrap up. Throughout our conversation today, you've done something that doesn't always happen on our Hard Truths podcast. You're regularly blending together a generational perspective with a concern about well-being. And we have something that we call in Canada, Get Well Canada. That's a, one of our initiatives at Generation Squeeze we're doing in partnership with many other groups. And in Canada, we're in a space that's a little bit it's unique, I think, compared to the Wales experience. We're next to the United States of America. There's just massive influence on not only the world, but it's an elephant. We're a little mouse. And Canadians often try and figure out, like, how is this little mouse different from the elephant? And you know, how do we define ourselves as a nation? And one thing we often recognize is that our neighbors to the south, by contrast with us and Wales and other countries, they don't have a publicly funded medical care system. And so Canadians have really like locked onto that culture, like, well, we know we are different from our neighbors to the south because we have publicly funded medical care. And it's kind of created this then cultural tradition that when we are good and just and noble, we do more medical care to treat people's illness when they fall sick. One of the implications of that cultural trend over the last decades is that we have more urgently been increasing funding to treat illness after the fact, but we've kind of lost sight of promoting well-being to prevent people from befalling sick in the first place. And so back in the mid-70s, like all of our provinces were spending more on social and education issues than on medicine. But if you flash forward to today, the reverse is the case. I hear you fusing together a sense of like, let's promote well-being, I would say, for like from the early years onwards, uh, you know, thinking, you know, to those who were unborn as well, in, in the right balance and proportion to what we do to treat problems after the fact, including illness. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you fuse those, the well-being and the generational fairness lenses together? It's, it's really striking. Right. Um, well, I, I'm not sure we're doing it as effectively as you perhaps were making out there. I mean, we, you know, have the National Health Service, a publicly funded, free at the point of use um, health service. And it is massively underfunded at the moment, really suffering um, with high levels of waiting lists and huge levels of demand like the rest of the world have gone through a COVID pandemic and um, put all sorts of pressures on the, on the service. So it is probably one of the most difficult parts of my role already to be um, supporting us to think, you know, well-being and, you know, long-term health and preventing problems rather than dealing with the urgent demands on the healthcare service that we see. But having said that, we are you know, starting to see some some changes and some really good practice examples. 
I mentioned, uh, you know, a longer term health strategy, I think, at the beginning of this conversation, but also, you know, increasingly looking at initiatives that are around social prescribing and so forth. So, you know, that, that is helping people to respond to issues, perhaps around mental health that people are facing today, but also avoiding those problems happening in the future. So, you know, I think it's fair to say the health sector, those delivering direct healthcare services are probably, you know, the most challenging for me to engage with just because of the pressures on their services. But we have an excellent uh, organisation called Public Health Wales, which is separate to government, which is very much um, aligned to the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. So one of my first meetings was with Public Health Wales and the law around wellbeing is embedded in everything that they do. And you see it right across their range of work programme. So I think that makes a big difference that we have a, you know, a separate agency there that falls under the act that has run with the act and is really thinking well-being and long-term health prevention, as you would expect an organisation like Public Health Wales to be doing, um, that has huge pressures as well, but is not sitting within health boards, um, those that are providing uh, primary and secondary healthcare services here. So hmm. that might be part of it. So it's an area where we see green shoots. You know, we see some really great practice but, you know, we need to see more of it and we need to see that mainstreamed. And it's my job to, you know, to, to say that, to say, you know, this is happening over there. This is possible. Um, the legislation tells you to do it. You know, we need to see that right across Wales so all citizens can benefit. So it's a work in progress, but some, some positive um, examples to cite. Just in case our listeners don't know the term social prescribing, could you explain what that means? Right. Um, well, social prescribing, I probably haven't got the exact definition um, in my head, but it's about a doctor offering a, a social response to a healthcare issue. So, for example, in Cardiff, you know, uh, a doctor here might be able to say rather than give an individual pills or, you know, medicine directly for a mental health care problem, they might prescribe, uh, you know, a rental bike and say, well, you're going to use that money to enable you to have a rental bike every day for you to take some physical exercise as a way of supporting your mental well-being rather than, you know, medicine. We have it in Canada where many a doctor, they would often like to be able to prescribe more housing or childcare or poverty reduction. They're not really in the position to be able to do that, but they know that really is the social medicine uh, that would be more important than the, than the pill, to use Derek's term. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that, and this is something that we do see actually coming through work around, you know, our law. So one of the things that we've set up as a result of the law is collaborative structures, whereby public bodies come together, they're called public service boards, and they're meant to come together and collaborate on areas of common interest. And, you know, one part of our country um, they're focusing on those wider determinants of health, so very much thinking about the root causes of healthcare problems and doing it under this legislation and doing that collaboratively, which, you know, I guess might not otherwise happen if it hadn't been for this law. Yeah. Well, no, we are almost out of time, and I have a, a bigger picture question, because I, I did read that you're a father, right? Yeah, I've got two children, yep. So I'm curious if 
If 50 years from now, what would you want your two children, what would be your dream achievements as the future generations commissioner for them to, to be proud of? What a, yeah, what a question. Um, it's, it's got to be about impact, hasn't it? And, and change and making, you know, real and substantial difference about things like, you know, having rivers that are clean for our children and grandchildren to swim in and an air that, that we can breathe and, you know, having um, protected the biodiversity of the country and having the kind of nature, fauna and flora that I am able to enjoy that is still here for the, for them to be able to enjoy and i think that's sort of fundamental when you when you think about this role and you think about the long term and you think what really matters to people it's those types of things that are likely to be the things that people will wanted to have us to have focused on rather than some of the day-to-day -day issues that perhaps we get more attention. Those are the things that matter, aren't they, for the well-being of future generations. And if we hold on to those thoughts and focus on getting that right, we'll go a long way to protecting uh, whales for future generations. Well, I can imagine that your kids 50 years hence will be looking back with a great deal of pride for, about the legacy that you're striving to leave for them and for your country context in by all of us. Well, I really hope so. Well, I don't think they really know what job I do most of the time. But, but, yeah. <laughs> 50 years from now, I'm sure that I'm sure that will be clearer. And uh, I think we're, we're really all indebted that we were calling you from an ocean away uh, to draw on the inspiration that you're creating, not only in your own community and country, but for those of us around the planet. And in this moment where there are real, real reasons to be anxious, about what the next decades hold for ourselves, our kids and our grandchildren. Thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, we can only do this together. And we, you know, we put this legislation in place because we were inspired by what was going on elsewhere and we've adapted it to our own circumstances. But we've got so much to learn from, from what you're doing and what countries around the world are doing. So hopefully, you know, this can be a conversation that's the start of many conversations where we, we share what we're doing and um, our experiences for mutual benefit. So thank you very much for the conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Hey guys, well done. I loved it. It was inspiring and just a really good reminder about like this is possible. It is possible to do both the work of addressing immediate public needs and also take action towards the long term. Um, I think sometimes depending on you know, the kind of work that one does, it feels like you might have to choose between one or the other. What is the longer term thing? And let's think about root causes and how to address those. Or let's triage, right? There are fires happening metaphorically and literally. We have to address that first before we can e begin to even think about the long term. Let's like help people feel stable. Um, and I really liked his story. I think it was about the wind farms and the hospitals and creating renewable energy, mm -hmm. it's important to have those examples shared with us that it's not an either or, we can do both at the same time. And in fact, that's the more maybe strategic, smarter, courageous use of our, of our resources. Well, I certainly came into 
the interview with the commissioner a bit nervous about the framing of a commissioner for future generations. I'm like, wow, like we got we have short-term intergenerational problems. Like we need to be talking about what's going on between young and old alike today, not just what's happening between those today and what's happening in the future. You know, but early in our conversation, he he put me much more at ease on that front, uh, really showing how his office is trying to combine the two. Although he he did share frankly that a lot of their work seems to be focusing kind of on an infrastructure issue, but hasn't you know meandered into tackling some of the thorny issues that actually happen in government budgets right now as Western countries like Wales and Canada are needing to adapt to the demographic surge of a older population as baby boomers are retiring and getting later in their lives. And so it was interesting to see that you know that isn't a space that they've moved into just yet, and that's really a space that we need to move into here at Canada and something that Jen Squeeze is trying to lead. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I'm imagining decision makers around a table and they have this act in front of them and it's sort of the, the seven, I think it was well-being goals that he mentioned. And I, I imagine, I know this is an oversimplification, that they've got this checklist now and they have to apply this lens to all of their planning and decision making. Bring on the checklist in Canada. Right. Like I, I imagine that it forces you to think about what you actually want. Like. Mm-hmm. What are we actually looking for in the next generation or two to three generations from now so that you can assess whether the decisions one is making right now is working towards it or actually undermining our progress towards that future? I've been in some conversations where it does feel like we're, we're, we're trying to address the immediate needs with uh, a secondary thought maybe towards what the future holds because the immediate urgent needs seem just so pressing and dominate. So I'm imagining it kind of just forces people to pause, articulate what we're looking for in the future and then seeing how we can, how we are or are not moving forward. And if we're not moving towards that future goal, at least we sort of do so with eyes wide open and we're, we're stepping away, we're deviating from the plan right now, but we're doing that intentionally. That just feels a lot. As long as we don't consistently do it intentionally. <laughs> I, I think for me, the, you know, the key takeaway from the, the interview with the commissioner is actually he's changed my thinking about what exactly Gen Squeeze is asking for in terms of having point people responsible in the world of politics for generational fairness. I think coming into this interview, I was like, oh, I know why we're prioritizing having a minister, an elected official who has cabinet responsibilities for budgets and having a sort of whole of government view on what governments are doing to invest in well-being from the early years onwards and getting it right for young and old alike and future generations. And now I want that and and I want a commissioner. Yes, yes. So I really do think that, you know, he's shone a light on why we need both pieces of that political infrastructure, the commissioner, you know, to help hold accountable uh, the elected official, the elected official who has in many regards so much more power than a commissioner will ever. And we have an analog to that right now, emerging, you know, related theme. We do have a minister responsible for the environment and climate change in Canada, and we have a net zero advisory board. Now, I wish that that net zero advisory board would have more teeth and ability to kind of hold accountable, you know, the political sphere, the elected sphere. Uh, And my sense is uh, the commissioner in Wales has the kind of teeth that the net zero advisory board might want to think about more. You know, I know they're thinking about more, but, you know, we might want them to get more of those teeth, get to the dentist people. Um, But um, in our case, I think we want to now start saying we want to appoint person who's an elected official so that their mandate letter 
has this responsibility to promote generational solidarity and in turn have someone in this more auditing role uh, to hold accountable and help make meaning for society of what is and isn't happening in that elected space. So thanks. What a gift uh, from the the Wales Commissioner to help um, refine our change-making strategy here in Canada. And with that, we might just have to wrap it up. And thank you and Megan so much for a really thought-provoking and I think really like helpful conversation for all of us. So thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening in. We'll see you at the next episode.